Welcome to episode five of the Reclamation Society podcast. This is Jay Shear, executive director of the Reclamation Society. This week, we're kicking off our Stranger Things series with our special guest, Karina Fabian. Karina has written quite a few books, all of which can be found on her website, www.fabianspace.com. Her bio is also on there for more information. Uh, Today, we'll be talking um, in the first eight to 10 minutes about her latest novel, Discovery, which is available on amazon.com. Karina writes Catholic-themed science fiction, which is great because of the Reclamation Society podcast, we value many different worldviews, and I believe Karina is the first Catholic we've ever had on this program, which is fantastic. Before we jump in, I wanted to mention another podcast that recently tackled Stranger Things. The name of that podcast is The Boiled Leather Audio Hour, which is hosted by Sean T. Collins and Stefan Sasse. They have some really interesting things to say about Stranger Things, and I highly recommend that you listen in. I'll post a link to their podcast in the show notes. But now, let's jump into our program. So one of the things that Karina is here to talk to us about, which is fantastic, is this uh, new book that she's written that has just come out. So Karina, tell us a little bit about the book. Okay, well, this book is Discovery. Um, Most people are calling it nuns in space. (laughs) And uh, it does feature three religious sisters. There's actually a difference between a religious sister and a nun, um, which my editor made very certain that I kept that that difference uh, noted throughout the whole text. But uh, for those that don't know, a nun is cloistered, so they're usually living at the convent. They're not really working out in the world. A religious sister has um, the vows and that kind of thing, but they live in the world, and they do duties, work jobs, that kind of thing. And in this case, um, I have three sisters, and Tommy and Rita, Tommy short for Sister Thomas Aquinas, and they have some very unusual jobs. This story takes place 150 years in the future, and their job is to do search and rescue operations and safety in outer space. So, um, This is a universe that my husband and I had come up with a great many years ago, and it led us to writing some short stories, which led us to doing some anthologies, of which Jay is a part of, and very glad. And there was a bigger story in my heart, uh, especially for Sister Rita. And so one month for NaNoWriMo, I decided to write her story, and when I got done, 50,000 words later, it sounded kind of like love boat in space um it was about it was about her having a conflict between falling in love with someone and wanting to stay true to her vows mm. and so many years uh, it's it's been eight years since the NaNoWriMo and many rewrites later it has become a hard science fiction story mm. um with a a couple of romantic subplots in there. Uh, don't want to give anyway any spoilers. <laughs> so, but um, essentially, Rita and um, her her uh, partners, sisters Anne and Tommy, were assigned to oversee the safety operations of an excavation 
out in the Kuiper Belt. And for those that don't know, the Kuiper Belt is the uh, asteroids and ice balls and all of those kind of things that are out beyond Pluto, uh, essentially. And doing some research, a uh, grad student discovered an alien ship had crash-landed on one of the Kuiper Belt objects. And so a team had been put together to go out there and study it, and uh, the three sisters were hired on to handle the search and rescue, or not search and rescue, but the safety operations, also to train those who didn't know how to do um, extravehicular activity and working in the spaces and that kind of thing, to train them up, make sure that everybody was really ready to handle this ex- important exploration. Hmm. And when they get there, they discover that all of the aliens had gathered into one place that's called the third arm to die there. Hmm. And Sister Anne realizes with almost a a supernatural um, knowing. In fact, it is kind of supernatural because she sees Michael the Archangel guarding that arm. And she realizes that they went there to die because that was their holy place. Mm. And there was no place else that they could go. And so that's where they gathered. Another thing that they find in that arm are separate rooms, which they mistakenly think for escape pods, and so they call them the pods. And humans that enter there get an experience, a vision, that gives them insight to something in their own soul. So in one of the romantic subplots... um, the guy who's been hesitating saying anything to this girl that he's falling in love with has this vision of how complete his life would be with her in it. And that gives him the strength to say something. Other people have visions that play into the fears that are plaguing their soul. Um, Others have a choice. You can choose A or you can choose B, and what they decide in that vision you know, informs how they start acting once they leave the pod. And so some of them handle it very well. Chris handled it really well. He decided to fess up to the girl how he felt. Um, others did not. And because of this, and because everybody is disobeying Sister Anne and going in there to the pods and having a pod experience, and she's trying to stop that because she knows it's dangerous. She's not a dummy. Um, but that starts putting the crew in danger and the mission in danger and both of the ships in danger. And so um, Rita, Anne, and Tommy have got their hands full, really, trying to make sure that they can protect the crew, protect the mission, and protect themselves, too, because there is someone on that ship whose real mission is to kill someone. Oh. Yeah, it's been a a very fun experience. Yeah, and it sounds like a fantastic premise. So I have two questions for you before we jump into the Stranger Things um, part of the show. So first question is, uh, what type of reader do you think should buy your book? Who who are you trying to attract, and who do you think will find the book really compelling? Well, um, this book is – let me say who should not read it. If you've got a problem with the Catholic Church, don't even bother. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which, you know, if you do – Okay, 
I get it. Uh, a lot of people do. I have problems with other faiths. So, but it is a very, um, I call it the Catholic pride novel, uh, because there are quotes of saints. There are some theological discussions. Um, of course, since the main characters and the heroes are nuns or sisters, rather religious sisters, the Catholic Church is getting shown in a very, very good light. And so, uh, if you like to have religion as part of the world building, if you're interested in exploring that, then yeah, this is a great book. Um, it's also for people who really enjoy a. Um, it's hard science fiction. It's big adventure, uh, almost venturing into space opera. It's got a big world, so a lot of influences of Firefly and, um, and sorry to say, not so much Star Trek, but because um, <laughs> it's nearer, it's, it's closer to our time. It's only 150 years in the future, maybe close to Enterprise uh, cool. time frame, but that, that would be the kind of people, so... Okay. Definitely Catholic geeks, geeks who like faith in their world building, and anybody else who's curious, I'm okay with that. <laughs> okay, fantastic. And what, now here's the, here's the real question, because this is where the Reclamation Society is all about deconstructing the stories that other people write. What, what do you think are a couple um, truths that are, that are kind of expressed through this book? I think the biggest one is that we're not leaving faith behind when we leave this rock. We, as human beings who are part of the material world and part of the divine world, we will always have that connection to God. And because of that, we will always need that expression. Fantastic. Uh, sounds great. I would highly recommend that anybody go out and grab it. Um, it's on Amazon. Uh, tell us how, if, how, what's the easiest way to find it if, if somebody wants to go on Amazon right now. You know what's really fun? This is the first time I've published a book that I can go into the book section of Amazon, type in the title, and it shows up on the front page. Oh, that's awesome. And I, I've, I keep doing it, and I keep going to my friends and going, will you see if it does it for you? Because that's never happened before. Um, <laughs> if anybody listens to this further in the future and that doesn't happen, you can just go to Amazon, type in Discovery, and then Fabian, F-A-B-I-A-N, and it will show up. Fantastic. Awesome. So let's go ahead and dive into The Stranger Things. So we're just going to cover episode one, but obviously we, we're going to get into um, probably some bigger themes that appear throughout the series. Uh, as I always say in this podcast, we spoil everything. So if you haven't watched Stranger Things yet, please go do so before you listen to us talk about it. Um, and we're going to start out by basically uh, on, a, on a scale of one to ten, how would you rate this particular episode of television? I gave it a solid eight. Okay. And why? How, how, how come? It had really good entry. It had some great characterizations. My first impression of some of the characters, I didn't like. Uh, mm. They seemed a little cliche, which is what brought it down a little bit. Uh, they do grow over the series, I will say that. But... There, there are some definite tropes that they're playing with, and in that first episode, 
some of those didn't get past trope. Hmm. Sure. And I think too, I mean, we're dealing with, um, whether you want to call it being completely derivative of, of a lot of different types of works from the eighties, um, or paying homage, you're going to, you're going to have some of those, uh, some of those, like you're saying, those characterizations that we've seen before. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, I think that's totally true for me. Um, for me, it was a, it was a 10. I, I felt like, and this is, this is actually coming from somebody who had, who didn't get on the train early. Right. So I actually had heard all of the hype and I was, and you'd think that I would be, um, disappointed because of the hype, but I wasn't, I actually felt like the episode was full of tension. I thought they did a really good job of introducing the characters. Um, they had compelling characters. I, I felt like I do agree with you that they weren't introducing anything new, um, which is a little bit disappointing. Uh, but I do think that they hinted at some deeper things that were coming and there was enough mystery for me to keep wanting to watch. So I thought it was a fantastic, uh, opening, but what would you give the series overall? Um, actually still saying an eight, Mm. uh, it it takes a lot to really impress me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's that's good. Um, yeah, but I, I have enjoyed it. I definitely want to see the second uh, series. There were a few times when I was just kind of smacking my head going, please, could we just think for five minutes? <laughs> could we actually communicate with each other? Right. That's one of my pet peeves is when the characters won't communicate with each other. Right. And right. then something happens, but you're not looking at it as, oh, this terrible thing happened because they were stupid and didn't tell someone. Right. You know, it's, oh, how sad that no one knows. <laughs> right, exactly, well. exactly. I, I give it a 9.75, so I really liked it. Now, granted, um, I do agree with some of the negative comments that I've heard. Some, some of what you're saying is definitely true. Um, and also some of what I've heard from other people, which is it's so derivative that they're not breaking any really new ground here, um, which is all true. Uh, and I acknowledge that. But I think that they're, they're doing it really, really well. What they're doing, they're, they're executing on very well. Um, so I actually have it as my in my top five TV shows of all time, which is is saying something. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. I don't know that they can capitalize on season two with what they've done in season one. I actually am very skeptical that they'll be able to, I wish they'd kind of just ended it and that was it, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, so, okay. Now we're going to jump into analyzing the movie from a storytelling standpoint and really digging into what it's telling us is true. So the first question on here is in reference to, what do, what are the filmmakers, in this case the Duffer Brothers, uh, the television show makers, um, what are they telling us is true about spirituality? And I have a couple of contexts that this falls into, I feel like, um, that happened in episode one. And those are fear, which you know a lot of people could argue, why are you putting that in spirituality? I feel like fear should be a part of anybody's spiritual um, makeup or their spiritual understanding, uh, and also the science, uh, science versus supernatural. So let's start with fear. What are the storytellers telling us is true about fear? What causes us to fear and what about fear is true in this world? Well, I see two fears. Um, one obviously is fear of the unknown, Mm -hmm. which 
that that kind of goes without saying since we're dealing with this mysterious monster that you only catch glimpses of which i thought was really well done um and the phone thing was super creepy Mm. i really really enjoyed that um but the other fear that you see again and again is the fear of having lost someone and of being completely helpless to do anything about it Mm. uh and and really uh, Tying that into the spirituality is this idea that um, fear oftentimes isn't just fearing for our own selves. It's for those people that we are connected to. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I had the exact same things. The only one that I would add to that that I think it kind of suggests to us is, um, and this is more subtle, I think that we also fear a loss of control. So I bring that up. Oh, yes. Yeah, yes. because... The, we, especially the mom. Yes, especially the mom. And and you'll notice that whenever something scary starts to happen, um, two things sort of accompany that. Either one, it's dark. Everything gets dark, right? And so mm-hmm. what happens when darkness comes in? We can't see as much. Like you're saying, it's the fear of the unknown. Like what's beyond the thing that I can't see. So that's part of it. But there's also this like electricity is disrupted or, uh, in the government installation kind of in the, in the beginning, um, order becomes sort of chaos. And I think that that is, is something when we lose control, um, there, the filmmakers are suggesting when we lose control, we start to fear. Uh, so yeah, this is true. And then the reaction is to try and do something about it. That's exactly right. Yeah. So now, given those, that those are fantastic insights. So that's what the filmmakers are telling us is true. What do you? How do you feel about that? Do you feel like they're capitalizing on that appropriately? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I am totally with the mother the mm-hmm. whole time. I'm like just just feeling it in my whole gut. I know. Even though I haven't had a child like disappear that way, I know exactly that kind of fear and that kind of feeling. And so, I mean, I just get tense even thinking about it now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I think that they capture it. Um, I think they capture it really well. Like you talked about the fear of loss and fear of losing those that we love, I think is, is a big one. Um, and with the mother, we're talking about somebody who has had a pretty significant rift in her relationship with her husband. So she's experienced loss. Right. And she has, she really has no backup. I mean, she's got a a teenage son who wants to be the man, but she wants him to still be a child, although a responsible child. And like you said, the husband's gone. So there's no partner here to, to support her through it. And the sheriff is very skeptical at first. And so, you know, she feels like she's trying and trying and trying and, and, Everything she tries is just kind of getting whisked away, and so exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah and I thought that they did a really good job of capturing um, the sense of the loss of control. So when the when, like you said, they handled electricity and the phone call um, so well that it became this it became this terrifying thing because not only was it what is going on and I fear the unknown, um, but also what I feel like I can control is completely out of my control. And I don't know what to do with that. Um, yeah. Which is really well, good. Yeah. She tries phone after phone after phone. 
And each one, you know, every time she keeps trying something different, something a little new, and each time she's foiled. Yep, exactly, exactly. So now let's jump into uh, the other thing that they bring up in the show, which is, um, and, and in episode one, they don't dive deeply into it, but we get a sense that there either is something scientific that's going on, something supernatural going on, or a little bit of both. So what is, a, what is the show telling us is true about science and supernatural? Well, I think that they're trying to say one of two things. You can take it two ways. One, that we can use science to tap into the supernatural, uh, the world of monsters, the psychic world, that kind of thing. Or you can turn it on its head by saying science can discover, explore, explain, and control the supernatural. If you want to go back to that, the fear and the control thing, that would be the bigger thing because there they are. They're trying, um, even by accident, they, they come upon this supernatural realm or parallel world, depending on how you want to explain it. And they send somebody, well, no, I think that's, that's not it. Is that first episode? Uh, first episode, there is, they, they do Did send they go somebody in. They send in, somebody in. Yeah. Right. So they send somebody in hoping that he can explore it, define it, give them a little better idea of, you know, what they're dealing with. And of course that backfires. And then with, um, 11, you know, that one is a, it's a very obvious hmm. trying to, use science to force something that we have long considered to be a, a supernatural occurrence and um, pretty well done, pretty well done. Uh, but I can see why people would say, you know, they still haven't gotten past the, the trope idea because that's that idea of you know, training children and using drugs and other things to try and bring out psychic powers has definitely been done. Right. Um, Got to say though, I loved L. I thought she was a fantastic character. She really was. Yeah, she's done very, very well. Um, I agree 100%. Um, and I thought they actually handled the, is it science? Is it spirituality? How, the, do the two interact and how do they interact? Um, I think they handled that pretty well overall. But what would you say, in your opinion, is actually true? So they're saying, so they don't, I don't think they come to a conclusion um, even in the entire series, once the series is over, I don't think that there's a conclusion made about really what the upside down world is, or um, or how it's how how science is engaging with supernatural. They don't they don't define that, so to speak. But for you, how how did they do in terms of relaying truth to us? I see it as a parallel world. Uh, I don't think that these are demons. It's certainly a hellish world, but it's not hell. And so, yeah, I pretty much looked at it as they've somehow opened up a rift into a parallel universe, and now that's bleeding in, and these creatures are going to do what comes natural to most life forms, which is to try to expand into a new environment. Yeah, and, and I think I think you're probably right about that. And I'm what I, I'm I have kind of a hope that they don't go there because I, I really do like the suggestion that the upside down world could be a spiritual world. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I, obviously if you asked me, um, you know, what, what would hell look like? I mean, we're all going to have some definition of what that is, but, um, in this case, I think it would be more interesting if they left that open as opposed to closing the door and making it purely, purely science. Um, so we'll have to see what they do with that and how they develop that. Uh, because obviously I think we would say, um, that, you know, if, unless you're an atheist, you would believe that the spiritual realm exists. And so the question is, how does it exist? Even if this is a parallel world or a parallel universe, uh, how does the spiritual world interact with this parallel universe as well? This, this really decaying universe in this case. Yeah. So we'll have to see what happens, but, uh, it's, it is an intriguing setup for sure. Mm. Uh, now we're going to break from spirituality um, and transition into human nature. So we're going to ask the question about what are the storytellers telling us is true about human nature? And I'm actually going to start this section off by, um, this is a basically an introduction episode. We're being introduced to a bunch of new characters. And I think that they're suggesting in their initial take on these characters that do we see the best in people or do we see the worst? So what I'd love to do is actually get your take on the following characters uh, and what the, what the, what the show is telling us is true about these characters. So first we'll start out with the boys. So Mike, Dustin, Lucas, and Will, what do you think uh, they're telling us is true about these kids? I think that they're hitting on the power of friendship, obviously. Um, And that um, friendship allows you to deal with a whole lot, whether it's having to handle um, the bullies at school when you know you can't defend yourself necessarily, um, to how you're going to deal with something major like the loss of a friend. I mean, the thing that... I loved was when they got on the walkie talkies and he says, Will threw a fireball. Mm. And that convinces his friend in the totally nerdish way (laughs) that yes, we must take the initiative. We must go out after our friend. We can't sit here and just protect ourselves. We've got to fight for our friend. Yes, I, I love that too. Now, would you say that um, that the storytellers want us to like the boys? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. It's, oh, yeah. I think that's probably they, maybe too they obvious. They were darling from the very beginning. <laughs> yes, and they were also very um, – so I was born in 1981. So you're talking about um, people who are – these boys are would be in my sort of age range, so to speak, in the 80s. And – they're so relatable. I mean, they're they're playing uh, they're playing fantasy games. They're talking about Lord of the Rings. Um, they're transitioning the fantasy games into real life to make complex scenarios. Uh, so they're instantly likable, and there's an instant connection to them because they feel very real. I think. Yeah, my um, husband had that game. He oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, although we were sitting there going, you know, guys, they're doing the dice wrong. Oh no! That, that, that's another reason why it got knocked down a little bit on, on how I rated it, because how hard is it to have looked up that you throw a twenty? 
Yes. Or whatever it is. I mean, you don't throw a handful of dice, even in that particular game. Because I, I asked my husband, is like, you sure that one? Because it's an old game. Right. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I noticed actually there's a couple of things too where um, I think that they played, I think it's supposed to take place in 1984, and they played a song from like, 1985 or something. I mean, like, so they so they definitely like, like didn't get their yeah, the research mystical. quite right. Yeah, right. Apparently, also the skis are wrong. Oh, the skis were actually made. Those particular ones were made in the 90s. Oh, it's there enough you go. Of a recognizable tip. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. So how about so we go? Let's transition from the boys and let's talk about the sheriff. So Jim <laughs> Hopper. What is your initial feeling about him? What do you think the storytellers are trying to tell us is true about him and and what we think of him? He's a man who gave up. Hmm. I think that's pretty much what they're trying to show us is that he's a man who gave up, um, and he just at this point is trying to coast his way through life. Uh, obviously, not dealing with his grief issues. Uh, I did not warm up to him mm-hmm. well because he really and and knowing this is a homage to the 80s he is a very 80s stereotype cop uh, right. there are that there are times when you see it, i mean the character the actor is playing the character brilliantly my favorite scene, I think, is when Winona is trying to get him to take her seriously about her son being missing. And, and he's just tired and skeptical. But <laughs> right. also, I mean, he's also knowledgeable, though. Right. He, he knows enough. Unfortunately, he knew enough to try to talk her out of the urgency of the situation, too. Right, right. But um, the way that they interacted, the way they talked on top of each other, the way he was so not dour but you know how he, he was just kind of like it's all right it's okay right to her i've got to do something we have to do it now my child is dying he's in a ditch somewhere right like, uh, i i loved that scene we just got done we were we were re-watching it um for this and i think that really is my favorite scene of the whole show yeah um and i do like that even though he's personally given up when he needs to step up, he does. Right. And he's right. a knowledgeable man. He's not just, uh, he's not useless. Right. And I appreciated that they did that because that also tells you that even people who are in this situation, I don't want to keep saying giving up, but who, who are just no longer wanting to be part of life, does it mean that they don't have something that they could contribute and that they can't step up when the need arises right. and that they can't change and become heroes if necessary. Right. Right. Yeah. I think he has, he has a, a very nice character arc throughout the whole series. So I think he, he definitely starts out with, like you're saying, somebody who's sort of lost. He is fairly apathetic He's definitely flawed. He's he wakes up and starts drinking beer. Um, he's yeah. not taking things seriously. Uh, I do think it was a little bit um, heavy-handed to have the scene where we had to learn that his his daughter passed away. It, just the way that was revealed was maybe suggestive of them trying to make us empathetic to his character 
very early on in the show. Yeah. Um, there there was the little bit of a hint with the picture of the family right before you see him passed out on the couch, but you can chalk that up to just a bad divorce. So. Right, exactly, exactly. So, uh so overall you kind of the jury's still out on him in episode 1, but I do like how his character develops. Um, how about Steve Harrington, Nancy's boyfriend? How, how is he introduced and how do you feel about him? Uh, he's a cliche. <laughs> I'm sorry. He had his charming moments, but mostly it, it was like, it, it was Jock who wants to get in the girl's pants. Yep. Yep. I had the exact same he, reaction. <laughs> he made me think of, uh, this is probably before your time. There was, um... A really bad set of movies called Porkies. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I'm familiar with those. I have no idea why my parents ever let me watch these, <laughs> and I would not <laughs> recommend them to anybody. But yeah, he kind of reminded me of Porkies. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen those, but I'm familiar with them. <laughs> Don't bother. Yeah, Don't bother. yeah. It's like one of the Animal 80s House things. for those that for those that are not familiar with Porkies. Animal House. There you go. It would be perfectly at home in Animal House. Yes, and and I do like that. Again, it's 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 one of those things where it's very derivative of other works, but you recognize the character immediately because, like you said, you've seen this character in other places. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you feel about Nancy Wheeler? Um, she also felt like a cliche to me. Um, it, the thing is, the actors and actresses in this show are phenomenal. Right. Every one of them. I thought that they played their roles brilliantly and their roles were very believable. I just felt like the roles, especially um, where it came to her and Steve were Mm. very much a, you know, we've, I've seen this in the movies growing up in the seventies and early (laughs) eighties. Right. Exactly. Yeah. and, And which is fine. I, I don't have a problem with playing with that. I play with cliches all the time in my writing, but, um, I just didn't much feel like they grew beyond that right. as characters. Right, um, right. I actually liked her friend a little better. Right, right. So her friend felt more real to me. I agree. Actually, I found it hard to like her in the early episodes because um, she's obviously someone who's struggling with trying to be responsible, trying to be popular, trying to find her meaning, trying to find, uh, her relevance. Um, and all those things are very interesting from a character standpoint. And I think that they're, they're hinting at, and they never really get into this very well, honestly, but they're hinting at the family being your traditional is again, this is very cliche, but the eighties family who looks great on the outside, but there's problems going on, um, internal to the family. Mm-hmm. And I think that that they didn't really ever explore that. So this is just obviously episode one and we get an indication that there may be issues, but those are actually never really resolved, um, in that family. So, right. So I think that, well, her, that in real life, you don't resolve all the problems either. <laughs> this is true. This is very true. Yeah. So I do think that her character does grow um, grow on you as the as the season progresses. But at, at first, yeah. she's a little frustrating, I think. Yeah. Um, how about uh, Dr. Brenner? What's your first reaction to him? Why are the 
the villains always some of the best developed characters. <laughs> mm-hmm. I thought he, I thought he was a very good villain. Um, I thought that there were cliched elements, but there were some things, and and I may be conflating this with some of the later episodes, but. You could see why Elle was calling him father. You could see those moments where he actually seemed to care for the girl as well as things. He's, she wasn't just a tool. Um, I actually, it's in the early part of the first episode, you know, where they're going down and they're investigating the, um, the, the site where the other dimension or spirit world has kind of taken over and everything. I didn't at first think of him as, hey, here's the bad guy coming to see how his experiment messed up. I mm. thought he was a government aid person brought in to clean up the mess that um, scientists who got eaten in scene one had caused. Uh, sure. So I, I liked that. I mean, you didn't just look at it and go, ooh, look what you did, you nasty man. Right. So, yeah, so I... I, I as far as bad guys go, I, I did like him. Yeah, he does seem he does seem pretty well rounded as it goes on. He, the the one the one, um, and they set this up in the first episode, and it carries kind of throughout the the season. But he does he's fairly emotionless, which is which is pretty fascinating. He does seem to care for Eleven, but he's so uh, reliant upon her for his science that there's an indication that he may be using her as much as he is um, caring for her, so to speak. Yeah. Well, I got the feeling that he was using her and then had grown to right. care about her. Right. So how about how about Eleven? You mentioned her earlier. How, how do you feel about her at first? I thought she's certainly the most unique character of the whole thing to me. Um, I love the mystery behind her. I love how ex- much she can express without actually having to do a lot of talking and, and doing and things. Um, I thought that they did a good balance between her innocence and naivety as, as a, a child who had basically grown up with nothing but scientists, and yet you can see where that programming hmm. came through and sometimes was almost instinct. Um, I, I actually dealt with some of this in one of my other books, Mind Over Mind, where hmm. um, the boy had been, was being manipulated to use, gee, his psychic powers. Gee, that's a trope. <laughs> to use his psychic powers to kill somebody without, um, you know, actually touching them. And so, and it terrified him when that actually happened. With her, it, it was interesting that she did it. And you, you talked about Dr. Brenner not having a whole lot of emotion about it. In some ways, it seemed like she knew the horror of what she did and yet she was separated from it for the sake of expediency. Right. And that, that's kind of a spoiler happens later on in further episodes. But this first episode, the way they, they played her as, as the scared runaway, um, 
trying very hard to just hide away and be safe somewhere. And, and the way that she clung to Mike mm-hmm. was masterfully done. I, I agree. Um, couldn't agree more. There, there's sort of this instant sympathy for her. And I mean, she goes through these things where you just have, um, it's just kind of as a hit to your, to your heart because she's, she's just go, she goes bonkers over the French fries. And then, um, when the diner owner kind of then gives her another meal, she just starts, you know, shoving it down her face and he's trying to get her to talk. And there's this, I do think it's, um, you're right to point out that her, there is a little bit of a conflict in her in terms of, uh, later on, she'll call Dr. Brenner Papa and, that she has sort of an affinity for him, if you will. But at the same time, she does just kill those people like without even a second thought. So she's struggling even in herself. And when we learn that she has these powers to do these things, we go, Oh, she's not as, she's not as um, helpless as we thought she was, but she's certainly lost regardless. And right. I think that that's, I think that's fantastic. Um, Okay, last one. Last one of the people that are introduced to us, uh, Joyce Byers, who's Will's mom. Definitely my favorite character. Um, she was the most real to me. Um, I was blown away by Winona Judd's acting in this. Uh, I think she did the harried mom extremely well. The whole scene in the beginning where they're doing breakfast and where's your brother? And I've told you, I've told you a thousand times. I've lived that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I, I have I have done that scene. <laughs> right. So um, as she's dealing with all of this, it, I, I was dealing with it with her. I, I cried a few times. Mm. Um, I have to admit, though, toward the end, I was starting to get tired of all the angst. Ah. I'm hoping that at some point we get some happiness. So taking it into to the very last episode in the spoilerville, even when they were having their, their happy ending, she still seemed tense and frightened. Hmm. I did not, I did not see her as a, Thank heavens, yeah, this is done. We can enjoy ourselves. It was more like, how do I please everyone? How do I make this not go away? Uh, I kind of got that little bit of a feeling. And and perfectly understandable. Right. But that was her whole mood through the whole series. Yeah. Or through the whole season, rather. Yeah, that's fantastic. In fact, I don't even have anything to add. I think you covered it really well. I think... Um, she does a fantastic job of caring for her son. She doesn't give up, um, even to the extent to which uh, she finds all of these really um, interesting ways of communicating to him. She's she's more concerned about helping him than she is scared of whatever this monster is. Uh, so I think that's all handled really, really well. I think that's very cool. I love that she used her brains, too. Yes. Even... Yes. At the height of her fear, she was still thinking, okay, I replaced the phone. It doesn't work. I will try replacing the phone this way and see if it works. I will try a wireless and see if it works. I'm going to get lights so I can trace my child's progress. I'm going to set up the alphabet. Maybe he'll figure it out and he can communicate. Constantly 
constantly thinking, planning, moving ahead. She she's a survivor and really the one that thought the most through the whole uh, thing, which just again that's one of the things that bothers me the most is when characters don't think. Right. So I she gets kudos for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's cool. Um, all right, so still in the human nature category. Um, what is the show telling us are the characteristics of courage and who in the show displays courage and how do they display it? Well, obviously Joyce, because she's not only willing to physically take on these monsters, but she's also willing to think outside of the box and try to make others when they're calling her crazy, she still has the courage to say, no, you know what? I know this is it. I know this is how it's happening. And you can try and tell me different, but I'm sticking to this because this will save my son. Right. So there's a, a lot of moral fortitude as well as physical courage and gumption that she displays. Mm-hmm. Uh, the kids, obviously, showed a lot of courage because they were willing to put themselves in dangerous situations. Uh, it would have been nicer. And again, this may play into the fact that the family wasn't completely functional, but yeah, it would have been nice to have had a family band together and try to help. But mm. in light of that being not possible, then I think that was, uh, that was well done how they worked together. I liked how they stood together against the bullies. Hmm. That was big. That was big. I I was surprised. There's one, there's one, this is just a kind of a side note because it's not necessarily about courage, but I was surprised because in that interaction with the bullies, um, I remember even saying this to my wife the first time we watched the first episode, but the bullies made, um, Dustin, uh, uh, dislocate his shoulder mm-hmm. and I'm like oh foreshadowing he's going to have to do that at some point down in the future and then when he does that he'll be able to you know stop prevent something from happening or save somebody and actually they never capitalized on that specific yeah thing. oh I know <laughs> and they, they did make a big deal out of it it's like having a superpower yeah except that I don't get to save anybody exactly uh, maybe, maybe they'll revisit that in the second season I hope that's, so it's like the Chekhov's gun Yes. You're sitting there going, come on, look what this kid just did. Exactly, exactly. Um, But I think you hit on all of the major uh, categories of courage. I think, um, you know, like you said, determination. I think there's there's an element of courage um, that's true when we go against the grain or we go against, even, even if it's authorities, right, where we say, you know what, I have more empathy and I must go against the rule of law to accomplish this thing because it, because it is good to do. Um, so I think that was, that was great. Um, and the kids basically saying, you know, we're going to go look for our friend, Will, even though our parents have told us to stay home. And even though there's this giant storm coming, um, and, and they're not, they're, they're also, I think it's true to say too, with courage, courage is not the absence of fear because they're, they're scared that entire time. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's rather the, and so is, the, and so is, uh, so is Joyce, right? And mm-hmm. so it's the courage is, I think they're accurately displaying. It's the ability to, despite fear, 
participate in behaviors that are good for other people, um, which is fantastic. I thought that was good. Yes, absolutely. Um, okay, so that breaks our human nature uh, category. Now we'll move into the relationships category. So what is the TV show telling us is true about relationships? And so the first one that we'll talk about is uh, the government, secrecy, and science. What is it telling us is true about those things? Oh, I don't know. I have to eye roll this one. The whole the whole conspiracy thing. I think Netflix is kind of on a conspiracy click. <laughs> have you seen the series Between? I haven't, no. Oh, yeah. It, it's also government conspiracy. They were testing some kind of virus on a tiny little town, and then they quarantined the town, and only kids under 21 have survived. And, <laughs> and so now you've got this one, and Rob and I were watching this. Rob's my husband, and we're looking. It's like Department of Energy. Ah, yes, because since the Department of Energy is in charge of nuclear weapons, they of course will be developing all kinds of exoteric weapons <laughs> secretly in their little labs in the basement of a power station. Yeah, um, I can't really. I can't really say. I, I think that there's anything especially true about um, what what they're trying to say about the government. I think I think they're playing into the standard conspiracy um, cliche. Mm. And so, uh, I know you asked earlier about how far should the government be pushing science and the consequences of pushing it to its limits in past. I think that science gets pushed to its limits, not necessarily um, because of government. Um, I think that corporations, universities, I mean, we're seeing a lot with uh, stem cell research and that kind of thing. Government tends to be the first scapegoat because they get to determine if it's legal or not. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I think that... um so I think that they, I think it's fanciful. So, so I'll start there. I'll, I do think, yeah. I do agree with you that it's, it's for sure fanciful, but I think that there's enough, every organization has issues. Um, you know, obviously I'm going to come from a Christian worldview. And so I'm going to say, as you would with the Catholic worldview, that the world is subject to sin and therefore mm-hmm. uh, it's, all, it's, it's, it's impossible to put together a perfect system. Um, and if that's the case, then I think that you're right. Government is a very easy target, but I also think that when we have, we've seen stories where, you know, when we're, when you look even at world war two and the development of the, uh, nuclear technology, and you look at, um, some of the things that have been done, even in the recent years with, um, the candidates that are running now and what they've done behind the scenes and, or haven't done behind the scenes, and I think that there is, in any organization, there is this fear that we have that the organization is somehow, even though it's supposed to be protecting us, there might be some hint that they're actually harming us. Um, so I think yeah, that I there's, 
Yeah, there's a certain amount of truth to it, I think. I, do I think that they're pushing it really, really far in this show? Absolutely. Um, hopefully there would be some sort of oversight that would say, you guys realize that you're unleashing potentially hell on the world by doing this? Like, you probably should stop that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I think that there's a natural... Um, there's a natural aversion, especially in today's world, right? There's a natural aversion to organizations, whether it's, in fact, I actually think that sometimes we trust the government above other organizations, uh, maybe irrationally. So, you know, yes, yes. Um, in fact, as you, you, when you talked about in the, in the beginning, um, if you, you, you talked about your, your new book and you said, well, if you don't like the Catholic church, then you probably need not apply. Um, you know, the Catholic Church has gone through its own, you know, uh, organizational issues. And so I think we ha- we're living in a world where, and, and, and I say that, so has the Protestant Church, so obviously do, does the Islamic faith. I mean, you pick a faith, it has gone through its issues because these are organizations. These, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're going the more to, organized they are, the bigger the target. That's exactly right. And I think it's interesting that we... That I think if you were to poll Americans now, and I could be totally wrong, and I have no data to back this up, but just because um, just because of what I know in my own research about uh, the Protestant Church, um, I think people would say, "Well, I pr- I I probably trust these faith based organizations le- less than I trust the government." Um, yeah, and I I would completely agree with you, and yeah. I think. Well, let's not get into politics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That could be a whole other conversation. <laughs> it could be, yeah. But I do think that um, in some ways we're being led to that. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. And I think uh, the the struggle and the the perhaps the truth of the struggle that maybe is not even dealt with here is that we are called, I believe, that human beings are called into community. And you actually really can't exist in healthy ways without being a part of a community. And at the same time, that community, because it's made up of human beings, is going to disappoint you. And it's going to hurt you in some way, shape, or form. Um, and I think that I think that we can't, though, just assume then that we must avoid community and we must avoid organizations. Because... The truth is that we can't actually um, develop intimate relationships outside of community, um, and so we have to play this ba- this balancing act. We have to be willing to get hurt by community, um, even though, and we can have a healthy skepticism of organizations. I think, but at the same time, we have to. We need organizations, um, mm-hmm. whether it's the Catholic Church or the government or uh, the Protestant Church or um, the Muslim faith, whatever it is. We need those things to or be a part of universities or exactly, uh, exactly businesses. They yep. all serve a purpose. the The key is to remember that at the heart of it are the people. And if you don't like how the organization is going, you change the people, right? And you change the you change the culture within that. Um, it's kind of interesting. I've been reading uh, for my regular job. I'm doing some articles about stock investing, and there is one very famous investor that what he does is he looks for businesses that are being badly managed, and because of that, the stock goes down. Then he buys the controlling interest, and he goes in, and he says, 
we're changing this now. Mm. And he changes, he changes the management, he changes the procedures, and he gets in there and he can say, I'm doing this because I own this company now. And he actually has turned businesses around for the good. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's, we don't have to have a downward spiral. That's right. People can make a difference. That's exactly right. Yep. Yep. And I, and I do think that, um, even transparency plays a part of that, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and so I do think when I do think we have this, the show is playing upon this fear that, that things are not being completely transparent and therefore what are they actually doing? So it is an interesting, interesting little deal. Okay. So last question. Um, and that is, what is the show telling us about what friendship means and why we need friends? Ah, friendship. Well, we talked a little bit about that with the boys, uh, that it can take you, it can support you in both small things that seem large and in even bigger things that really are major. Uh, even when you have family relationships, you still need those friendships because you need that outlet that um, is like other than blood, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. where you know somebody is liking you not because you're related to them, not because you're living in the same house with them, not because they have to like you because that's your mom, um, but someone that you can show that other side of yourself mm. and that will accept that other side of yourself. Right. So, And that could be something that, that Nancy is trying to deal with. You know, they, obviously, the parents are expecting her to be the very good girl and to get the good grades and to do this kind of thing. And even though her mom is saying, honey, you can always talk to me, she feels like she can't. Right. So, And I know... How many how many teenagers feel that way? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a very common thing. So, but but and it, it's a very natural thing, which is why we need the friendship. We need people that we can go and share these outside things with, and that's a healthy thing because at some point we have to move beyond that family relationship. Um, you don't see it at all in the series, but if you want to take this into a more spiritual and religious realm, the idea of friendship is one of the things that leads us to God, too, because with God, you don't have to have barriers. Hmm. You don't have to try to be good. Or you should. Certainly God's expecting it, but he also understands you can go to him with things. And so, um, you know, friendship helps you to understand that. Uh, it's the same way that, you know, parenting relationships help you understand God as the Father, but God is also a friend that we can turn to. Yeah, and, and I think you're, you're hitting on the concept of, of intimacy, right? And yes. It's been, it's, it's well, well researched and documented that when we lack intimacy, um, with other people, uh, from a friendship standpoint, from an emotional intimacy standpoint, um, we are, we're not able to 
fully live into who we're meant to be. And, and I, I think that's very true. I think that's, um, I think that the, the kids struggle with that. I think that it's most evident in Nancy because Nancy is dealing with, do I want to be seen, uh, seen in, by my, by the school or by all the, the kids in the neighborhood as being really cool because I'm with this popular guy? Um, or, you know, am I really seeking intimacy with like Barb? And I think that's why there was such a strong reaction to um, Barb's demise is that she's sort of left out there mm-hmm. um, and there's no circle back to, you know, she was the one who was there with Nancy who was saying, I know you better than they know you and you don't want this. Um, and yet that loop was never closed, even in the very, again, we're getting way ahead of ourselves from episode one, but we get into the last episode and it's kind of like the entire town forgot about Barb. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's a bummer because there seemed to be a, a a strong uh, intimacy between Barb and Nancy. And that just sort of dissolved into nothing somewhere. Yeah, it really did. Um, and you know, it's interesting too, because I did not see Nancy as wanting to try to get in with the popular crowd. Mm. I saw that she was genuinely interested in Steve Hmm. and that taking along his baggage was something that, that she was willing to try to do in order to have Steve. Sure. Um, Sure. And so part the one thing that I did like about Steve was that when she told him no up in her bedroom, he actually said, okay, then let's study. Yes. Let me support you. And I thought that that was, that was where he really broke out of a cliche. Um, and I, I'm hoping that we see some growth from him along those lines. He might actually turn around in the second season, and that would really be nice. Uh, but I, I, I did not like – I really felt like Nancy was basically just dumping her friend for a boy, mm. which really is a very cliche thing and also like every girl's best friend's nightmare. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's I think that's totally true. I think the, the when we talk about friendship and when we talk about it goes back to community, right? Like mm-hmm. um, our friends are going to hurt us, but we know that going in. Um, and if you if you said I want to avoid hurt at all costs, then you would never have friends because we're all human beings and we're going to have. But like I love what you said is that I think um, our friends can reveal spiritual truths to us. They can see the world in ways that we don't. Uh, their strengths and, and their weaknesses um, can be things that we feed off of and support. And we can't really truly live as um, fully functioning human beings, if you will, for lack of a better term, uh, without having close friendships. So I think that's, I think that's fantastic. Well, that's all I had. So thank you so much uh, for for joining us. Um, I will just put in a little plug. Um, so for those of you who don't know, um, 
uh, I have worked with Karina before. I fully support you purchasing her book. I'm sure it's fantastic. I have not read it yet, um, but I would love to. It sounds really interesting. Um, And thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you. This was a lot of fun. All right. Well, that's it for this edition of the Reclamation Society podcast. What did you think of Stranger Things? I'd love to hear your feedback. You can leave us a comment on Facebook, Instagram, or our blog, or you can even send us an email at reclamationsociety at gmail.com. We would love to hear what your thoughts are on the series. If you're interested in other things we've worked on, or if you'd like to support us financially, or even sponsor our podcast, please visit www.reclamationsociety.org or email us at reclamationsociety at gmail.com. We really appreciate everybody who donates and supports us financially. Uh, Upcoming topics for this podcast include the continuation of this Stranger Things series, a discussion about The Dark Knight by Chris Nolan, and a discussion about Captain America's Civil War. So make sure you subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Podbean and share it with a friend. And remember, question everything and seek the truth. We will see you next time.